Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael, Hello, Michael welcome Waits. to ATP Stories. We are all about the stories that make the Asian tech ecosystem so exciting. And today to help us share a story with us, with the presenters, my name is Graham Brown and Michael Waits joining me in the studio. We have a partner in Hi. Seed Plus, a relatively new fund set up for the Asian market. They're supported by Google and PwC in Singapore. We're going to talk about his journey, becoming a partner in CPUS, all the way from California to Singapore, learning about becoming a VC, how their fund is structured, as well as the kind of deals that are involved in the Asian market, as well as advice. You know, if you're looking to start out and you want to become involved in the VC industry or that side of things, that side of the table, Michael's going to share with you some advice about what he's learned in the process whether it's turned out as expected, what kind of things he's learned in becoming a VC. Welcome to the show, Michael Smith. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have hey, you here. Thank you so much. It's Michael Waits, so let's try, we'll try to get around the confusion of which Michael is talking about. I think, our voices are, I think our voices are different enough. It's really bad, too, because we were talking before we went to record, right, that we have at least the name in common, and you, know, you said you like to sort of I'll, – I'll use my own words about me, so I can get into a rant a little bit. Maybe maybe we'll have a little competition on that as well. Rant on, also, rant on. But also, you're from California, so I was born in Santa Barbara County. So, and I'm older than you, obviously, but not not so much, to be fair. But um, <laughs> I'm pretty <it's>, old, so. <laughs> so yeah, like if I so when people ask me how old I am, I like to say 72 because it confuses them. But I'm because I'm not <laughs> 72. Um, but that just kind of is what it is. Born in the year of, maybe. Yeah. Born. No, that was me. I'm born in the year of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, All right, so we've got Smithian Waitsy. Smithian Waitsy. Smithian, so, so, so we can tell a little story here. So because I've always had this naming problem, right. um, when I joined one of my first startups in San Francisco, it was WebLogic, which is pretty famous. It was bought yeah. by DEA and later Oracle. When I started, uh, my boss was named Michael, and a guy I worked with was named Michael, and yet the company was only about 20 people or 25 people when I started. So one of the guys I worked with is German. His name's Carl, and he just said, well, this Michael thing is not going to work. From here on out, your name is Smitty. And basically that stuck with me because I was in my late 20s, but I, when I joined C+, and I, was, I could get any email I wanted because there were no other Michaels, I, I I reset the naming clock and told everybody to call me Michael, but a lot of people in the region will know me as Smitty, actually. Fair enough. A little trivia for everybody. Yes, I, guess, I guess that's what your friends call you, Smitty. I actually try to get everybody to call me Michael because it's such a work <laughs> thing, but you know, yeah. for the purposes of this podcast and keeping the name confusion down, go ahead if you want to say Smitty. So. Or yeah, I mean, people have been me, yeah, people have been calling me Michael my whole life. I don't know. Nicknames, but they tried to call me Waitsy when I worked at Macquarie. It just didn't work. Anyway, um, so you've but you've been in. I, I really want to. I really want to get through. You've done so much interesting stuff to me, and you've ended in a place where, um, ended. You've ended up in a place, at least for now, where you know it's getting to be kind of a popular thing to do. But you were you're like a computer science guy, so you've actually programmed for a while, right? Yeah, I would say I'm a terrible engineer. So I did go to. Junior college for engineering up in Northern California, which is actually where like Intel and NEC and Hewlett Packard all were back in the pre-internet days. Right. Um, right. Actually, got my start in engineering, uh, actually customer support and doing some engineering stuff. But I would obviously, after two or three years of being on the keyboard, I came to the conclusion that that I want to see myself writing code for the rest of my life. The answer was no, and I probably because I wasn't great at it. Fair enough. But at the same time, it felt like such a solitary exercise. I think some people really excel at that, like put my headphones right. off and code all day. I love it. I, I, it was too isolation for me. So I, I knew right away that it was great to understand how tech worked, and I, I loved that I could code and understand code, but I quickly realized that I didn't want to be there. So, so the first job I got into outside of that was what we called sales engineering back in the day. So I'd actually go with the sales rep, dress up, but I was the nerd in the room. Um, and I like that because it, it got me away from the keyboard, but the techie stuff gave me an edge. Right, so you could humanize technology for people and explain yeah. it to maybe like a people that didn't fully yeah. understand things. Yeah. 
So when you moved to Hong Kong when at the beginning of 2000? So yeah, it was like right around 99, 2000. And what it was actually is I was working for BEA who had bought WebLogic and I was part of that, I guess, inner circle of the acquiring, you know, the acquiree company. And I, I kept saying I wanted international experience. I was doing a lot of travel. Okay, okay, that's what I wanted. Yeah. And they basically, and if my boss said, I'll give you two cities and start with an H as a choice. And for the life of me, I figured out one was Hong Kong, and I could not figure out what the second city was. And I was looking over, like, a map, and what it was was High Wycombe, which is near London. Oh. Um, which, for I understand, for all the people from the U.K., that's a terrible place to be. Oh, yeah. So I said, no, thank you, I'll take Hong Kong. And it was a one-year contract, and I woke up five years later still in Hong Kong. Yeah, fair so, enough. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had a two year assignment in Tokyo, which turned into twenty two years. So yeah, that's how it happened. I think usually you do that two years and you're gone, or if you go past that assignment date, you're stuck. Mm. So well, I got you, stuck. You, yeah, you usually get there that. and you, you meet a girl and then you know you settle down. That's usually what happens, <laughs> isn't it? That's usually the story when you talk to any kind of expat yeah. living. Yeah, I guess it does. So, <laughs> so I did Hong Kong, a little bit in China, some time in Thailand, and then Singapore. But. You were also at Yahoo, which I find really interesting as well. Yahoo, you know, obviously back in the day was a gigantic name in the tech ecosystem. And I'm sure that being at Yahoo in Southeast Asia was a ton of stuff that you learned that you probably wouldn't have learned if you were back in San Francisco or back in the California yeah. Cal space. You want and to I run think, through that a little bit? Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize even like how big yahoo was in southeast asia from like a user engagement perspective so so yeah i was actually in thailand i was doing some non-techy things and needed to work again i made some phone calls in the weblogic network and sussed out a job in singapore working for yahoo but in this interesting kind of way i was also kind of reporting to sunnyvale in in the product teams but also helping southeast asia with the product so it was like a global product management role um, and this is when Yahoo was probably still at its peak, hadn't really yeah. started to collapse yet, but not really just from the, the people collapse, but even just the engagement stats were quite incredible in, in Southeast Asia. So like, you know, in Philippines, like you would hardly find anybody if they were on the net that didn't have Yahoo Messenger or you go to Vietnam and, you know, everybody's email was Yahoo. You know, so yeah, it was incredible. We got to play with products at scale but we also got a first-hand lesson in kind of how everything can go wrong which i think you know that's pretty huge right because you can learn the positive side of how to do things or you can learn what not to do as 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 how to do things and so i think in my journey at yahoo was a lot of what you shouldn't do um and you know and that had everything to do with like trying to figure out product when you're in sunnyvale for let's say Philippines or the, you know, things you do to kind of localize too heavily or under localize. I mean, there's a lot of, I always use the analogy that like if, if the Yahoo was running the Facebook product, it would be a different color and a different font and a different layout in every country. Right. Where if Facebook obviously succeeded by not doing that, by making it the same in every country, you just maybe have your language toggle. So, uh, I think Yahoo had this like hyper localization trend, which was very expensive. Um, but at the same time, you know, Yahoo always had some amazingly great people. We always talk about bleeding purple and just the camaraderie was huge there. But to kind of, you know, I guess help to, to ride herd over the decline was not super fun, but learned a lot. And I, I think it, it, there's, there'll be a Harvard business study someday about, how you take something at a, at a peak in Southeast Asia and literally just write it down to where no one even knows what it is anymore right. um, is kind of hardcore. But but I learned a lot about product management. I learned a lot about uh, managing political upheavals within companies. And I think I really grew a lot in how to, how to survive in a big corp because that was probably the biggest corporation I had ever worked for at the time. Yeah, for fair enough, and it's huge. I thought, I, like you said, I don't think most people understand like actually how big it is. Even today, yeah. I mean, not well, like at some point, existence. I think it was fifteen, sixteen thousand employees when I was there, right? Um, yeah, it's huge. You know, with even just thousands around Asia, but but it was fun, and we learned a lot. And I think people used to love the products, and people used to love working there. So that was a good time. But 
um, I, I'm always amazed at how quick it kind of collapsed. Yeah, I mean, that happens, right? I mean, at the speed of the internet, right? That stuff just does happen. So you, yeah. do you, you left you left there. It, it, I, I was looking at your schedule. Like, you left in 2012. In a way, it feels like a really long time ago, but the reality is I didn't even, in February of 2012, I had frankly just moved to Bangkok, so it doesn't feel like that long ago. Yeah, it feels, I mean... I think when I started jumping into Yahoo, because I was there like two and a half years, I think the whole Asia internet journey for me was just kind of starting, even though yeah. it was really taking off anyway. But what I was doing in, when I lived in Bangkok, not before Yahoo, was actually not really any internet stuff. So I think for me, the Yahoo thing was, wow, like the internet journey in Southeast Asia particularly is really just starting to kick into gear, where you see just... Yep. You know, massive amounts of people coming online. You're measuring, like, we would measure Yahoo products and how many thousands of people joined per day, literally per product. Um, you know, just unseen kind of stuff. So, so for me, my internet journey for Southeast Asia and like internet commerce and things like that, that was really the beginning of it. So it does feel like a, like, when I see charts and people showing stuff about Singapore and the startup scene, I, I, I kind of feel, a little old timerish because I'm like, well, back in you know, <laughs> but at the same time, like it's really the beginning, and I, I, I kick myself actually continually for not maybe at that period starting some sort of entrepreneur journey in one of these countries in the internet, building my own product, knowing that that was the base of everything, right? I mean, look, sometimes you're too deep in the middle of something to really understand it, but you've done a really good job, it seems to me, of you know, figuring that out, getting in, getting involved with school. That sounds like it must have been an amazing experience as well. Yeah, it's what, fun. And, yeah, I mean. And what is Hook? What is Hook? So Hook is, uh, so basically what happened to me when I was at Yahoo, I was helping a little bit with some of the video products. Right. And just looking at like the bandwidth coming up, the devices coming up, the, the idea for me, and obviously I'm not the only one with it, was, wow internet video is going to be big. It won't necessarily yes. all be YouTube. And how do we deal with this? So I actually was interviewing for a job at Vicky, believe it or yep. not. And, yep. Vicky, wow. and Spool. And honestly, the only difference was I just had a baby and I didn't want to be on a plane all the time. And I wanted to kind of build something from scratch. So Vicky was already well on its way a couple years in. And, right. and it was going to involve some travel and I, I didn't want to travel. So... Spool was kind of ground zero for some early approaches at how to deal with uh, premium video content in the emerging markets. And so what it was is entirely focused on Indian content, but you could stream it anywhere. So rather than doing the geography thing, we did the content first thing, but you could be anywhere. So we had Middle East users, African users, American users, all that kind of thing. Um, and it was started by people that were initially involved with Sony India, which was used to be a startup before Sony bought it, Sony right. Entertainment Television. So, so for me, it was a chance to build something from scratch in the video streaming space. Uh, Spool's still going. Um, it's it's one of these things that doesn't get a lot of press. I don't think they actually need a lot of funding because it's actually going pretty well. Um, and you know, and it, we got the ground zero build, the back end, the streaming stuff, the players the whole bit and very small team, but just focused on, you know, doing that. So for me, like that, that was quite an interesting journey and in building a product from ground zero. And then I just had decided I had been doing that one type of product long enough in one space that um, I joined hook, which is a joint venture between Sony Warner brothers and Singtel. And okay. this is where you have, the telcos always wanting to be the streaming provider, marrying up with the content guy to try to take on the Netflixes or the Star Hubs of the world type of thing. So that's the, the hook what's thing. Your, what's your view there? Like, <laughs> um, well, you can read today how uh, you can read today how uh, iFlix just got funded for hundred. Yeah, I, 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 I iFlix just got funded for like the third time for many yep. millions of dollars. Um, so I think the journey there is there's only a few winners in this whole space. And um, I don't think Hook's going to be one of them. 
Um, I'll just go on record in saying that. Uh, I think that the telcos aren't necessarily the ones to always pull this off. You can see in America how that doesn't really work. Of course, you know, the telcos get so big, they buy the other players like yeah, AT&T and Time Warner, but I don't think Singtel can buy somebody. So, yeah. So I don't think it's going to work, but I think what I thought it could be was a very interesting project with very senior players in the industry, Sony, Warner, and Singtel, right. and really trying to see that could we craft something within the telco infrastructure that was better than the people who are outside of it. And unfortunately, we never got to prove that point because Singtel didn't really go that deep in creating right. a, a good product that they would push through their network. They just kind of, you know, you know, like you could have, like you could imagine that like if the, Singtel affiliates, your AISs and your Globes basically were like, we will make this product super successful. You'll get some free data. We'll make payments lickety easy. Yeah, and yeah. when you buy your credits and your top up, you know, like if you could just go really deep there, you know, because these are all prepaid, mostly markets, you, you could envision this could get interesting. But the problem you have is, well, Netflix is there and Amazon Prime is there and iFlix is there. The competition's stiff. It, it just didn't really come out the way it was intended, right? But yeah, I got a lot of good experience working with Sony and Warner, and that, that that I was very thankful for. Yeah, I mean, I have my own view on whether that type of sort of, I don't know, simulated entrepreneurship is actually going to work and create something big. I think you have to start this from scratch and without those relationships and hustle to get them and then build something that actually has compelling value for them first before. Uh, just It's just my own view on it. So we can talk about like investment theses and stuff like that. So now you've done all that stuff and now Seed Plus. Like it's so hard and I know because I've been trying, right? But it's so hard to go out and raise like a first fund. Sure. It's yeah, just hard. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, like, let me just elaborate the journey a little bit more because please, please. You That's the whole... 10 years ago, like, hey, would you be a VC? I probably wouldn't have said no. I would have said, like, really? No, I don't think so. Like, I don't know what that's all about, right? right. So what, what did whet my appetite, and actually this is where I always try to tell one of the life lessons here for the podcast is, be a nice person in your entire career. Yeah, exactly. You'll, you'll benefit from that. And I and I say that with, I had my years of not being the nice person and I realized that, that that's really silly, right? So one of the things I'm really thankful for is when I was at Yahoo, I got to whet my appetite with Corp Dev, which for everybody is buying companies. Um, so I was the buyer, right? And, and at Yahoo, I got to work with David Gowdy who's actually one of the managing partners of Jungle Ventures. Previous yep, to that, David's he was at TPG. And then he was like at 11 years at Yahoo or something, one of the longest running careers at Yahoo. And we did the Copral deal together, which is if you look at a chart of acquisitions by, let's say, exterior companies or Fortune 500 companies not in the region buying something from the region, I think it's one of the first deals ever done where a Fortune 500 company bought a wholly owned Indonesian company. It wasn't even a Singapore company. It was an Indonesian company. Um, and I got a feel for, you know, the deal, I guess you could call it, the art of the deal, the like integrating something and just kind of, you know, that M&A was kind of fun. Um, so I did more of that type of work. I didn't really accomplish any other deals because I think a lot of people don't realize you end up working on a lot of deals that don't end up getting done. For right? sure. Yeah, they don't. Um, right. So, so for me, that was one side of this world because I think VC and private equity and all this stuff really are financial vehicles. And one of the exit strategies is actually M&A, right? So I got to sit on one side of it and learn a lot about that. And that would be conversations even with the Yahoo CFO about deals and how these things get done and the integration, the M&A, the due diligence. I don't think people realize how much goes on there in the big companies. Um, so that was where I got, I guess you could say, started my journey in thinking this stuff was interesting. Um, and then along the way, when I was at both Spool and Hook, I did some side projects for people, actually some for TPG. Um, you know, one of my fun things is I was involved in the due diligence for the property guru deal, okay. um, which was kind of, you know, it was a pretty big one for TPG, right? Very. And then, and again, that was David. Um, and then I actually, along that journey, met he and go from, yep, uh, from Asia Food the, Network. Yep. Asia Food Network, um, was one of the nerds he would call 
And then when he started his, his journey into being a VC, uh, we actually came up with an arrangement where I was a paid advisor to them and really got to, again, get deeper into the VC world, but as an outsider still, and just, you know, starting to like it, right? Like this might be more interesting and, and I've done this other thing for years. This might be another thing to do. And then when David left TPG to join Jungle, he called me and said, hey, we got this thing we're building called T Plus. Not many people know about it yet. It's not formally launched. Uh, what do you think? And actually, it took me a while to even wrap my head around, is that what I want to do? But once I started talking to them, you know, the whole Jungle family, so to speak, I, I realized that like, hey, this is interesting. And then actually, then I started talking to lots of people, MSI, Sequoia, and stuff like that. And then uh, eventually settled on this just because of, I think it fit me a little bit more, the, the operating principles we have. And that, to be frank, it was something they were basically allowing me to kind of run, right? So so tell me how that works. So what is Seed, what is seed Plus? Yeah. Like, what is it meant to do? And Yeah, so Seed Plus, and again, I always tell people, and it's a great answer, like, what is it meant to do? Because we haven't done it yet. Um, what it's meant to do is to be one of the premier institutional seed stage VCs in Southeast Asia. Um, because if you actually look around and there are a lot of VCs, don't get me wrong, not many focus entirely on seed stage right? and, and do it at the level to where the check sizes are five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred grand per deal. Right. Most uh, of them are 50, 75, 125. Yeah. Or a syndicate round of 250s, yeah. but any one VC at the seed stage maybe isn't risking more than that. Where we're kind of saying, let's do what we think worked for like first round capital in the States. Yep. And that's why it's called first round or like it's the first institution in. So what we want to be in Southeast Asia is the first institution in with a meaningful round, um, typically structured as equity. We usually ask for a board seat. We go through a lot of the due diligence that you might encounter in Series A, maybe not to the same level, but more due diligence than say, let me do a, a safe note for 250. Right. Um, and and invest with some conviction and some confidence in that we're not out there to do a lot of deals. We're out there to do the right deals for us. Right. With some level of we're very heavily invested in both capital and time. Right. Um, so you're like the anti 500 startups in a way. Yeah, and I and again, there's no negativity towards that, but like nope. where, where they're doing a lot of let's do 250 everywhere, and we step back and see what that does. Yep. And in fact, we're in some deals with them. Sure. Um, we're yeah, we're definitely not that, and we're definitely also not, um, you know, the one where you write a lot of 50 grand checks and, and sit back and say, should we go in again? It's more of you know, we have some experimental things we do. We haven't really PR'd or announced these yet, so that's coming soon. Um, but our our typical deal would be we would like to invest 500 to something. We kind of like to own this much. And here's how we think we're going to help you get to the next stage. Because the way we model things is once you raise money, and I think this is one of the things that young entrepreneurs don't realize, is once you raise money, you're kind of always raising money. Yep. You're never, you're never done. It's like, yeah, it's like a drug you start an adventure yeah. journey where you've taken money in and to keep, you know, and we also tell people some companies, maybe that's not what you should do. Maybe you should right. never raise money. I actually have a lot of meetings where people are always shocked. And I say, you know what? I don't think you should take money from me or anybody else. You should just go build this thing, make a cash flow positive and, and run a nice business. Cause that's okay. A lot of people actually do quite well doing that. Um, so we want to be the guy that basically tells people that, look, your next milestone is probably raising a Series A, and a Series A will look like this, and you'll need these metrics, and you'll need these types of revenue numbers to do it. And then based on that, let's kind of work backwards and say, what do you need for seed, and how does that work? Um, so that's kind of what C Plus is all about. There's four of us, um, and we basically – spend a lot of time to get a deal done. And then we spend a lot of time afterwards to help the companies wherever possible kind of get to the next stage. So have you made, have you made investments? So you, have you started building yeah. your portfolio? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've made, uh, five public investments. Uh, most of them have all been in the news in one time or another. We have some since then. They're just not public yet. I think our most visible deal would be probably at this stage of the game is this company called Moglix out in India. And 
it, it's just been kind of a rocket ship in that they've gone from C to Series B actually in less than two years. Um, so we were their seed investor, and then they raised A and they raised B. Um, so what, that's what, what, what did they do? About the most. How, like, what did they do? How did they find? Like, how did you find it? I'm curious. Like, you know, I I see a ton of stuff. I think deal flow is like one of the most important things that a venture capitalist can have, right? So, can yeah. you see the right deals? Can you get in the right deals? And can you pick the right deals? Really, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think everybody who's experienced will tell you that you can talk about all the other things, but at the end of the day, that's actually that and exits are the metric, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think this is one of the things. So let's step back and understand the Jungle Ventures view of this. So Jungle Ventures is obviously one of the older-ish Singaporean yep. VC funds. There's a few that have been around around the same time frame as them. Uh, they had their Fund 1 and Fund 2. Uh, fund 2 closed last year at around $100 million U.S. Um, what Jungle Ventures team between David and Amit and them were figuring out was Series A and up is a really different ball game than Series A and down. And what they wanted to do was separate institutional seed from Series A and kind of put a team on it and let them focus. Um, so we're in the Jungle Networks, Jungle Ventures network, so to speak, because the way it works, not to get too techy here, is in Singapore, a lot of people may not realize that the venture fund industry is regulated by MAS. Yep. Um, it's getting lighter as time goes on, but it's still pretty a higher bar than most geographies for starting a fund, deploying capital, all that kind of stuff. Um, what Jungle Ventures, you know, the, the tack that they're taking is uh, let's have a venture firm where the back office capabilities like compliance, legal, finance, analyst work, due diligence is largely shared structure across multiple funds. So other typical firms in Singapore, and again, this is not like a right or wrong way, just one method. Um, other funds typically are a firm of just one flagship fund, right? So, um, and that's how most work. So it's your flagship, you know, I had fund one, it's closed, we're now on fund two, and the entire team and firm is focused on that one fund, right? Right, they, ro they, um, rotate, they rotate to yeah, whatever the existing flagship fund is. So we are rotating within our flagship funds, but what we have is multiple funds. Right. Um, so Seed Plus is, is a, essentially another fund. Uh, Jungle Ventures is an LP in that fund, but we've also have LP investments from other funds like Excel in India, uh, Ratan Tata, and then we have other LPs that are large financial organizations like IFC, Fidelity, um, mm -hmm. and then some interesting players like Cisco and stuff like that. Um, and this is what's different about C plus is that the LPs are wanting almost like corporate VC access. So rather than starting their own corporate VC fund, they've invested in us to be a seed stage fund. Right. So they're that, basically, they're basically, it sounds like they're outsourcing their sort of seed investment stuff to you. So they have money that they allocated to doing this, but they really don't have the resources nor the sort of ability to do seed style stuff or understand it. And they just said, yeah. let's build an infrastructure around it and institutionalize it, which is not a bad Correct. idea. And I think we're like the farm system for them. And I, and I yeah. think that's perfectly okay because what we yeah. get is a very interested LP. They're very interested in strategic follow-on acquisitions. They're really interested in market access. We meet with them regularly. And yeah, rather than them, and some of them have started even their own incubators or accelerators anyway. But what they say is, let's also bet some money on institutional C, but let's let these guys handle it. Um, and, that, and that's the model for C+. And I think it's very different than what other people have done in the region. It remains to be seen as this the right long-term way of doing it. Because again, it'll have the, the results will have to speak for themselves years down the road. Right, right, right. But this is kind of how it's been set up. But what's your view on this? In other words, you know, you talked earlier about investment theses and stuff like that, right? So what's the, is there a common theme? Uh, so for me, right, so I have my own investment thesis, it's, and it's really straightforward, and it, ch it changes sort of subtly over time. But I'm just curious what yours is and how you apply that to the companies that you see and how the companies actually find you. So, you know, you, you look at a lot of these sort of early stage investment businesses, right, that aren't as institutionalized as yours. And, you know, they have a homepage and you sort of submit stuff to them. But getting in touch with them is hard unless you know them personally. Like, how do you manage deal flow and 
how do you decide like what you're going to focus on and what's the thesis around what types of companies? And I don't mean what sector, because I don't think you have a sector. Neither do I, frankly. But I'm just curious, like how you manage that whole process and what the thought process is around it. Yeah. So we put a lot of work into the team around how to actually get a, a, a workflow around this problem. Cause we do get a lot of cold leads. We do get leads from our network, our advisors, our angel people. We get leads actually from the LPs. We have a lot coming at us. So one of the things we do is we do have a thesis. Um, and what I mean by that is the things we care about investing in. So tell um, me. So at a very high level, we care a lot about automation. Uh, we think the world is just going to get more automated, both at a hardware software kind of people level. So just a really wide swath around automation. So one of our investments is EV.ai, which automates your calendar with a virtual robot um, to, you know, you could imagine automation being something like the autonomous car, but also we think the industrial automation phase has really just begun. Like we automate factories and things like that. We also think there'll be personal automation where like EV it just helps me work smarter and, and, and amplifies my capability. So automation is a big thing for us. Uh, the second thing for us is, and it kind of dovetails with this a little bit, is that the future of work, you know, specifically in Asia is going to change a lot, right? And it's not yeah. just the, I'm an Uber driver, I'm a Grab driver. It's, hey, I want to be a part-time knowledge worker or I want to like, you know, uh, I'm going to do Bitcoin mining. Like you could imagine just all these things that the, the, the future of work's changing, but we also think the employers and the employees need new tools for managing each other, managing themselves, managing how they find work, how they get their insurance for their part-time work, all these kind of things. So we just think the future of work is going to look very different, you know, 10, 20 years out. And, and how do you invest around that? Um, the other one we care a lot about is just infrastructure. Um, and what we mean by that is, we generally will probably not be interested in a consumer e-commerce play, but if you're somebody selling something to lots of e-commerce sites to solve a particular problem, that's interesting. So infrastructure, logistics, security, software, developer tools, we just think is interesting and is, is obviously, I guess, as a, as a label is more B2B-ish, but really specific to kind of yeah. the picks and shovels, like the gold miners. How do I sell something to you to help to go do whatever you do better? Um, and then the fourth one is really around the deep spaces we see and the opportunities around, um, you know, some people use the fintech label. We get more specific. We say around financial services and insurance services. So, you know, if you ask most people and say, do you love your bank? Most people say no. <laughs> um, but at the same time, if I said, hey, I'm this new startup. And I'm going to build the new bank. Do you want to use it? They'll also say no because they don't trust it. Right? They don't trust it. Yeah. Um, so we and, and the banks in Asia dominate almost all financial services, but we do think there's opportunities in things like credit, um, things like the unbanked, um, you know, just better ways of maybe trading stocks because like E-Trade pulled back from the region. and There is no Charles Schwab of Asia. So we we feel like there are some opportunities in financial services. And then we see we, we, we paint the same brush around insurance. And people, you say, do you love your insurance broker? No. Uh, why, you know, it's too expensive or the premium doesn't work for me when I'm unemployed or you can imagine a whole bunch of things. So we think there's opportunities around the consumer side of it, uh, insurance, but at the same time, there's opportunities around the tools you might sell to the uh, insurance companies themselves. So those are our four big buckets. Got it. Uh, we have reams of documents around what in those buckets we really care about, something we don't share, but what we use this as a filter to say, if you're sending me something inbound and you don't fill these buckets, we're probably just going to generally say we're not interested unless you were a lead from one of our amazing advisors or you were a lead from one of my friends. I might look, but our filter for the markets is still going to kind of win out over most of those things. And then what we do spend time on the outbound is let's go to conferences to fit these. Let's go to user groups to fit these. Let's try to go to markets that have these problems. That would be how we would focus our our actionable outbound activity so you know helps us on the inbound filter helps because as you know you could just constantly be busy responding to things rather than finding investments 
Well, that's the other thing too, right? Is you have to make this decision is, are you going to be like one of your jobs is just to go out and actively find things. You can't sit at your desk and just wait. And I know you know this, but you can't just sit at your desk and wait for stuff to come to you. Yeah, and this you is, actually have to be part of the community so that the yeah. community doesn't have to come to you all the time, right? And this is what I tell people. Like I, if someone said to me, like, what is the biggest thing you're learning and grappling with as a VC that you were surprised about? And I'll tell people time management. <laughs> because like at least when i'm shipping product and i have engineer like it, there's a way to kind of structure your time to say hey we don't want to burn out we're going to code this many hours a day we're going to try to accomplish this in two weeks um and what i tell people what vc life feels like is on january 1 i'm inside this snowball that's rolling down a hill and it just keeps ac accumulating more snow as i go throughout the year because my my network grows, the companies grow, you make investments, your portfolio grows. Now you got to get better about portfolio construction. Oh, wait a sec, we got to raise another fund. Like you, you can just, you know, I suddenly realize like you're grappling with so many problems that your own personal time management becomes really important. Yeah, so do you invest in a time management card? You mentioned something about calendaring and well, we scheduling. Did invest in, yeah, we did invest in EV so that I, I, I spend less time scheduling meetings. And believe it or not, I do think that's a big boost to my personal productivity because I don't, you know, I'm not on the phone or with these five people going back and forth. this Tuesday at 12, okay, Thursday at 1, okay. Like, EV just does that for me. Um, and I'm, you know, even if I was an investor because I actually used it before I was, I'm basically hooked like if you ripped evie from me i would be upset so um, which i, I so guess you, that's one of the reasons why you invest in it is if it becomes such an integrated integral yeah we call it like if something becomes somebody's toothbrush it's probably a pretty good investment right yeah fair um, enough what's, what's your view on the rest of the industry though so you talked about institutionalizing seed stage investment there's a ton of you know, Singapore is actually blessed but cursed by the NRF and a whole bunch of other things, right, where the investment landscape gets skewed by just what I'll call too much money and too much leverage to a certain extent. So things in Singapore, right, get funded that shouldn't get funded because the risk return profile is skewed by leverage. I'm just curious. Yeah, but I, I, would, I would argue that – so I always preface a lot of what I'll say next as – I am Singapore's biggest fanboy. Um, yeah, fair and enough. the reason for that is because I bounced around the region and I've seen the difference. Um, nobody's perfect, but I'm That's pretty not. happy with the tool set that is Singapore. So I think on this leverage thing and what we call easy money, they, they've been hearing that for enough years and been seeing the result that they've, they've moved things up, right? Like it's harder to get leverage for basically anything. Now they have leverage specific to certain sectors rather than generic investments or like they're giving people leverage on iot and leverage on industrial automation but your general startup generally can't get a leverage investment anymore from what i can tell so i think they've moved things up the funnel because they know that the ecosystem is also moving up the funnel so there's always a lot of activity going along and there is easy money but i think any ecosystem has its issues but that the general view is there's a lot of opportunity out there so we need to you know throw it so there's lots of competition there's lots of seed stage funds there's lots of incubators and accelerators and i i and i hear this a lot and there's lots of funds but generally what i'm learning as an as a newish vc and being really careful about is there are actually no external metrics to judge anybody yet because the funds are all still pretty young, right? That's the point, though. Um, right. So I think until you have funds that will want to go public with their IR or funds that the LP people will tell you, I'm really happy being in that fund. I actually got a check back. <laughs> I think we're too, we're too early yet, right? I mean, most funds are basically – five years and on the second fund. And actually when most people are on their second fund, there's not enough in the first fund to judge you with yet other than maybe paper or gains, right? So I think the industry around this region is very young. Um, and I think it'll remain to be seen if there's been too much thrown at something or not yet. Um, but I'm pretty hopeful that Singapore continues to jigger and fine tune everything to be very successful. 
Um, and and, I, and I, I feel that it is. But let's see what happens over the next few years. Yeah, so if you listen to Graham and I talk, one of the things we've been talking about recently is actually what makes a great startup city. So, and, and again, only because – and I'm more interested in, in regions in particular, and frankly, I'm more interested in companies. So that, that, that's yeah. fair. People den- do tend to talk about you know, some of the great startup cities in the rest of Asia. I won't even be specific to Southeast Asia. And you know, we're actually going to go around to each individual city, but six of them, maybe eight of them actually, and just go meet people like you. And try to determine what they think is the great thing about it. Because I, I agree with you, right? I think there's an incredibly robust startup ecosystem in Bangkok, in Ho Chi Minh, in Jakarta. You know, you could argue that there's one in Bali and a little bit in Hong Kong and some stuff in Japan as well. And I think all of them have their pluses and minuses, right? I mean, I asked you about Singapore, not because I think it's necessarily good or bad or indifferent, but because you're just there. In, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think it depends what you're doing, right? Like I, I think if I'm a startup and I'm wanting to build companies in Southeast Asia, I feel pretty strongly that there's some roadmaps to follow. One of the ones that we try to convince people of is you should headquarter your company in a really safe region or city that's easily to acquire. So when I tell a Thai startup or an Indonesian startup this, they kind of don't understand what I mean. Make your top co Singapore, right? Um, or, you know, some people will choose Hong Kong, but I actually think Singapore is more powerful. And the reason for that is because, like, we were recently talking to one of the big acquiring companies that's in the region about issues they have with acquiring. Because, remember, I think acquisitions are still going to be your main exit train in the region yeah, no. for a long time to come, right? Yeah, because IPOs aren't going to be the thing because where are you going to Yeah, IPOs aren't going to be the thing. And, like, if you're – and one of the things this guy's telling me, this guy runs Corpse Dev at a huge company. I'm not going to say the name, but everybody Doesn't. would know who this company is. Right. And he runs Corp Dev, and I, and I said, what do you think about the region? I, I met him at the Texan conference. He said, like, you know, people don't realize what we look at. He said, if I go and look at a mid-size acquisition, maybe between 5 and $10 million, which is going to be fantastic for a founder after, like, a seed stage exit. And he goes, in America, I know I can get it all done and dusted with lawyers and paperwork and due diligence for about 500000 U.S. He says – if I go and like find a nice Thai or Indonesian company at that same kind of acquisition level, he goes, I'm probably looking at one to 1.5 million in fees because of due diligence and corporate structures. And I got to bring lawyers. I got to translate stuff. He says all these kind of things that he goes, if it's only about a 10 million acquisition and I'm over 10% in fees, it's not he goes, it. guess who's not buying a company? Yeah, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So, so a lot of com- people need to realize what you're what you're trying to prep for. You're trying to prep to make these things easy. Easy. Yeah. So I easy. tell people is you know do a Singapore Topco even if you're a Thai company. It's not that big of a deal, right? Make it simple. But I think you also have to look at like where you're at. So I think it's like VCs. I think are better off in Singapore. That's just my feel. But if you're doing a startup, you could be in these regions. But understand what you're building for. But then I also think you have to have the lens of who are you as people and what stage are you are in life? Like, do you have kids? Do you have to send people to school? Do you need health insurance? Do you, is it safe? Like, so those, these are things that I start to talk to people about that they as a 40 something guy with kids and I've lived in all these countries. I just love Singapore because I can put my seven year old on the bus and I know he's fine. Right. And I know my wife can like navigate the whole country without having to have a car. And, I, and the public schools are great. Like, so I have these other lenses that I, I view this problem through versus just, is it a cool city to live in? Is our engineers cheap? Like to me, that, these are all different problems, right? Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, I would, I would make the case, and we can agree to disagree on this, is that I don't think as a venture capitalist you have to be in Singapore, but I understand. I don't think you have to be, but I but think that saying, like, you know, there's some reasons to maybe have your fund structure here, right? Oh, for but, sure. Yeah, yeah, you but know, no different I, than the Topco situation yeah, yeah. with startup. But doesn't mean you have to necessarily be here, right? Because right. I actually think there's a detriment to being in Singapore for actually some of the reasons that you mentioned. So I think having your having your company based or your legal domicile be in Singapore, if you're going to be in this region, is the right choice. I don't think there's any other choice. You don't want to have it. And people are going to get mad at me for saying this, but I'll say it explicitly. Um, you don't want to be in Jakarta. You don't want to have your Topco be in Ho Chi Minh. You don't want it to be in Bangkok. You don't want it to be in Manila. And you don't want it to be in Japan. And there are like probably 15 reasons off the top of my head that I can mention, most of which are legal and financial. Um, but others are because I believe in removing friction 
from all transactions. Yes. I really right. do. I believe so. If you look at the things that I invest in, they also remove friction from life. Yep. So to that extent, I think that's really important. Um, but on top of that, I think if you're really if you going to invest, because what, what Jungle does, what you guys do is slightly different, right? Because you're investing not just in Southeast Asia. You're investing in India. You're also investing a little bit in China, but also globally as well, right? And that's one of the benefits of having a meet at the head of the business and also having David there because they've been doing this for their whole lives. But if you're going to be focusing on Southeast Asia as an investment thesis, if that's what your thesis is to start, but you're building a global company, yeah, and I don't, and I, and I think this is one of these things where, like, I kind of, I, I, I kind of like, if you read Ben Thompson and Sir Techery, just to get at, I think one way to put a bow on this, you know, you don't necessarily want to be in the soft, squishy middle, right? And I think no, if no, you're no. dabbling and you're only in Singapore, you're probably going to miss something. If you're going wide, Singapore is a great base. But I would also tell people like, just go be the best guy for Thailand, and your chances yeah. are of success might be much higher than painting a really weak brush across Southeast Asia, right? Yep, like, yep, so yep. just don't be in the soft, squishy middle, right? Either have an amazing focus or now jungle, you know, they can afford to be the guy that says, I'm looking at India, Australia, New Zealand, even America and Southeast Asia because my fund size is big enough. We have travel budgets. We know how to do this. And we have right. some experience doing it with the type of partners we have. Right. Um, you know, but to, but you know, don't be in a soft, squishy middle because you you'll get crushed and you won't make a difference. Because we all know here that you know returns are hard to come by, and you know. But I but I do feel that like the optionality of an exit for a regional business is going to be much stronger than a particular country, unless okay. you're actually the dominant guy in a very large market space in that country. But those are hard to come by, right? Yeah. And, you, so, and dominant means you got to be like practically own the space, right? Right. So there aren't that many tokopedias, but they're no. right. So that's that's dominant in one country, and they've done a and, really good job of funding and growing. Yeah. Yeah, and we see more and more Thai startups that say, "Hey, I just happen to be here because maybe I'm half Thai, half whatever. I love living here. The engineering teams are solid, but I'm building a global business, and I'm like, awesome." And then they'll tell you they have a nice Topco structure, right? And I'm like, perfect. Um, I see less of this in Indonesia. Maybe it'll change. I think it's because the tantalizing market right. size, size of being an Indonesian-only yeah. company over, overwhelms people to where they don't think about this. Um, Vietnam, I think still mostly focused on Vietnam. Sorry, to be honest, we, we still feel like for today, the most regionality that we can expect to see is in a Singapore or Malaysian startup. Um, and then we're starting to see a little bit more pockets of this in Australia and New Zealand because they always look out. But there's no one answer for this. I, but I, I agree with you that your goal should be to remove friction as much as possible and get to the largest addressable market, and then you're going to have the best opportunity for funding and or acquisition. Well, that's great yeah, advice. We've got, we've got to let this guy go, Michael. He's given us so much content in the last 55 minutes. Oh, uh, it's been, it's been educational. Yeah. Yeah. I don't look. I don't look at time. I just look at. And Graham, you're so good at this because otherwise I would just keep going. <laughs> I'm so getting out the like, crook, ready to pull you off stage. Because Michael <laughs> would just keep asking questions forever. Well, because I'm interested think about the listenability, <laughs> the download time. <laughs> I don't care. I, don't care. I, I could go two hours. We're some peak of listenability. We can, do, we can always do part two. We will I mean, do. Let's I, do a part two. I think there's a lot to talk about this because I think the region is really at stage two of taking off, right? And I think Agreed. stage one is going to look looks much different than stage two. And stage two is what I've been telling people is coming. Just look at what WeWork just did with Space Mob. Yep. Um, there's been a lot of talk about, hey, only China's going to buy Southeast Asia. I'm no a way. big I'm no a way. big not fan of that because we need yeah. optionality everywhere. So Agreed. I think stage two is just happening. You know, a lot of people don't realize Corp Dev is the people that buy companies. Corp Dev and most of your Fortune 500 companies is not even showing up in Singapore, right? Even your Microsofts aren't here with Corp Dev yet. Your Oracles aren't here with Corp Dev yet. So the, 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 the buying has only just started. So I think we're really at the beginning of stage two. There's a lot to talk about how to make stage two successful um, and where are the ecosystems for that. Is it going to be a city-based thing? I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about for what stage two is going to enable. I agree. So, in with that as kind of the the end of this, I would I would actually ask if Graham will allow me to ask one more question, <laughs> um, and that is, 
just tell us you'll come back in a few months to keep talking about this because yeah, I, I, I mean, love this I, conver- I, I love this conversation and I talk to VCs all over the region as you know but this is one of the best conversations I've had in a while so I'd love to continue this if you don't mind I'm all about educating the market for the benefit of all of us because one of the things I keep trying to tell people is it's not a competition right now nope, nope. it's about it's about accelerating the entire region if one of these funds ends up having a monster exit it's going to be great for everybody, right? So, yes. uh, you know, it's not a pie that we're all, you know, taking from each other. It's a pie that we're growing together. I and I, and I, I think there's much for us all to learn from each other. And, and I'm the first to tell people that I, I hope to meet all these people to learn from them because, you know, we're just really starting the second phase of larger funds, larger round sizes, more exits. Um, it's going to be a great next 10 years, right? Fantastic. I could not agree more. Excellent. Okay, let's let's and with that. And with that. Well, before yeah, you go, up. Michael, before you go. <laughs> before you go. Smitty, no, no, Smitty, you're talking to Smitty. Yeah, I'm talking to Smitty now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Smitty, before you go, share yeah. with us a link that we can find out more about you because you've been so open oh, and frank with I, your advice. People want to yeah, connect with you. So I rejiggered all my stuff. So I, I run my blog, cvc.blog. Um, so s-e-e-d-v-c.blog is where I usually write not every day but practically at least every couple of days um and then the links to that you'll find my linkedin you'll find my twitter you'll find how to contact me i always tell people i always reply to people you know um and if reasonable and you want to meet up i'll try to accommodate that i love the twitter um so any of these places i'm reachable i love this course with people so don't be shy about reaching out after this and Great. Um, but cbc.blog is the one place you can go and find all the information to get a hold of me. We'll put it in the show notes. Michael cool. Smith, everybody. Michael Smith Jr., also known as Smithy. Yep. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, Thank really you. appreciate it. And as I said, it'd be thanks for so forthcoming with your advice. It's not often that we get that from people in your industry, but to be open with it and honest, I think for people listening has been great. And if you want to take that forward, then Michael has given you a link, which we'll put in the show notes. If you want to go and connect with him, I'm sure he'll be happy to listen to what you've got to say. Always good for a coffee. Always good for a coffee anywhere (laughs) in the world. Michael, come back on as well. We want to get part two. So we're looking forward to getting you back for the sequel. Great. Let's continue this conversation. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.